Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for joining with the pod these many weeks, some of you months since September. We are on the home stretch. We are going to finish out a full pod season into the graduation season of school. So this is a this is a this is a school year pod. This is a calendar. This is to me, this is epic. So this is, we're going September to June, okay? That's how we're doing this thing. September to June, nobody thought we could do it. We started from the bottom. We're still close to the bottom, yet we have a little bit of love out there. We got five-star reviews from, I think, mostly my students who have not listened to the pod. Most of you have not listened to the pod I know it for a fact because I've read your iTunes reviews. They're glorious, but they have nothing to do with the pod. It's things like, this is the most relaxing thing ever, or I normally hate podcasts, but this is great. Anyways, I love my students. Gosh darn it, I love them. I love them from here to there, all the way to June, and and then Godspeed to everyone in the universe because pod is going to make it to june and then pod is going to reboot regroup re- refresh we're going to we're going to build stuff we're going to plan stuff we're going to interview fascinating people we're going to tackle new subjects we're going to be doing all sorts of glorious things uh, over the summer building up some hope for this new school year coming in september a lot of people don't know if we're going to have school year in the september corona wave two corona wave three here they come crashing over over our heads, but I can assure you we will have pod season two. Do you know why? Because some of you put moolah where mouth was and made it possible for me to continue to pay the monthly fee to host these these episodes. There's a handful of you out there. You are my patrons. I want to say my patron saints. That's what I want to say. My patron saints. And because of you, season two, absolutely going forward. No questions anymore. Prayer time is done. Decision time has arrived. Season two. Let's go. And it's going to be exciting. I got some great ideas that are not all mine, but are great ideas. And I got some great people. One of the best things about the pod is the opportunity for collaboration. Uh, You know, and that's not what this episode is. This episode is just me, and I apologize ahead of time. Just me on this one. But collaboration is the is the beautiful thing for me in the podcast planning and the podcast. Um, sitting down with people, talking to people, picking people's brains, asking people about their life. This is what uh, this is what it's all about. This is what I love. This stuff. I love working with with just just deep souled people of of whom there are billions because God makes people beautiful and interesting and deep souled. Anyways, enough pregame. This is just a a sort of public service announcement because of wonderful patron saints like some of you uh, making it possible for me to not go into progressively more debt to host pod, build pod, record pod, etc. Pod season two 
is in the books. It's 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 in the planning books. It's not like in it's not at the end of the book. The book's not closed. It's in it's pla- it's going forward. It's happening. It it well, I would say like with James, you you got to read read James these days. If the Lord wills, we shall go to such and such a town. So, okay, I will say that. In my heart, pod season 2 absolutely going forward. If the Lord wills, pod season two will go to such and such a town near you, okay? So so excited about the future, but boy, howdy, are we ever aware that future is in the hands of the Lord. Could change at any moment, but I will just say thank you so much, genuinely. Thank you so much to those who have listened, shared, especially those who have like literally like supported monthly PayPal donations to the podcast, uh, which you can do by going to the website, uh, clicking on the, the link, the donate button there. It goes through Zoe Church, but it's earmarked for the pod. It's, it's all legit. Um, it's, you could write it off if you want. It's a, it's a 5013C. C3? C3PO? Oh, oh no. So much pod, so much quarantine. It's quarantine life and, uh, and, uh, and, and quarantine, and, I'm, and, we're, and we're doing just fine. Okay, so season two is happening. Patron saints of the pod. Uh, I don't even know what to call you. Uh, the patron saints of Babylon? That's not good. Don't be that. Uh, but a, a huge appreciation from everyone who's ever done anything to say, cool. <laughs> do more of that um okay for this episode though let's get after it for this episode putting on uh putting on that uh, johnny carson sort of that big sort of hat gonna do karnak the magnificent gonna i'm gonna do a speculation okay here's what i'm gonna do nine theses nine theses for the future nine theses for the future how is corona changing our world i'm gonna do nine speculation nine theses for the future of life as we know it, and uh, and I'm going to be sufficiently vague so I'm not wrong. And no, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to kind of I'm gonna try to project a little bit. I'm gonna say, okay, here's what I see, here's what I think, and then you are free to disregard. But here's I'm gonna say these are nine theses, nine theses for the Corona future, for the pandemic future of American life, Western life, Western cultural life. This is my speculation, reading th- stuff, hearing smarter people than me uh, make good, you know, reasonable sort of attempts to kind of forecast nine theses. Here we go. Nine theses for the new life in the age of the pandemic. Nine theses. Theses number one, welcome to the great dance. Thesis number, th- what did I say? Theses? Thesis number one. PhD in English literature. Here we go. Thesis number one, the great, welcome to the great dance. My friends, Corona ain't going away anytime soon. It's going to be a second wave and a third wave, most likely. But as you know, this week, next week, most states, most governors starting to roll it back. Starting to say, okay, can start to creep out of your homes, sort of start to start to you know vampire your way out of these dark places and your sallow skin. We're going to start slowly reopening certain sectors of businesses slowly, right? We don't want to be idiots, so we're going to start slowly, slow, carefully, right? Going to slowly start to roll out the next week or two. Almost every state has has plans to start to reopen certain sectors of of the business uh, and economic side of life. Okay, of life. 
Um, and, and everyone is sort of, most everyone is going to be really careful, kind of like, okay, if they start to roll it out and, and, and Corona flares up, we're going to roll, we're going to have to roll it right back in. So you don't want to roll it out too fast, right? One of the great things that's happened, especially in the more aggressive states, is it's worked, right? Like the numbers are super low. Uh, for those that were like after it early and after the stay at home early, Numbers are numbers in are, are in a comparatively very good place, right? And so you don't want to lose all that kind of you know capital that you kind of stored up a little bit, you know stored up a little bit of time to get going, you know full steam ahead on the vaccine and all these other things, right? Getting the trials going, getting things getting things rolling out. Did a great job. Did a great job doing the stay at home uh, thing. Super effective, right? obviously effective so you don't want to like you don't want to just be like ah like let's just kind of completely rush into this so it's going to be slow and it's going to be kind of like each state uh, probably each region sometimes each county is going to have to kind of test the waters they're going to literally move forward a little bit and then i'm telling you welcome to the great dance because state to state region to region county to county literally like wherever you are you are in a dance, okay? You're going to be dancing forward a little bit. You might do three steps forward, and you might have to do a couple steps back. You might do three steps forward, and there might be some like, uh-oh, uh-oh, and there might be a couple steps back. So so this rollout, I don't think, is going to go zero to one, one to two, three, you know, two to three. I don't think it's going to be just this normal progressive rollout until we're back to whatever we think is normal. I don't think there's a chance of that, especially if Corona is coming in, in two or three waves over the next year or two, right? I say thesis number one, welcome to the great dance. There's going to be a progressive relaxing of, of recommendations, regulations, stay at home, you know, whatever's, and it's going to be, uh, instead it's going to be safer at home. It's going to be, you know, don't have to be home all the time, but safer at home. If you're immunocompromised, if you're vulnerable in any way, if you're elderly, etc., please, God, stay home, right? Everybody else, carefully, carefully, motto is going to be safer at home. Don't be foolish. Don't be reckless. Don't be arrogant. Don't be selfish, right? Don't be selfish like these people that we're seeing and rocking around Target with no face mask. That's selfish. That's gross, right? The face mask is, is out of respect, okay? It's not to keep you healthy. It's to keep me from your breath. Your face mask is for your neighbor. Anybody I see without a face mask walking around hates their neighbor. I, hate, I, I can't stand it. It's, it's horrible. Don't be selfish. So it's going to be a great dance. There's going to be certain places going to be able to do this easier than others. Cities, good luck. Good luck, poor cities. Good luck with dense populations. Good luck. Counties like ours, OC counties, kind of more suburbia land, hey, going to be a little bit easier to manage. Not as densely packed in most of the places in Orange County. But again, be respectful because the areas that are more densely packed, usually in places like Orange County, are areas where people are more often likely to be poor and have less options and be essential workers making like hourly wages. So let's not be ridiculous and selfish and creepy in suburbia land and be like, oh, Buffy, join me on the yachts. You know, like, don't just go back to normal, horrible, whatever, you know, me-centered life. It's going to be a dance, okay? So don't be depressed if you, if you take a few steps forward and then all of a sudden the governor's like, we need to take a couple steps back. Don't, we, don't, we don't need a bunch of more, you know, Huntington protests or San Clemente, to be fair. My own people got mixed up in that too. Uh, we don't need a, a bunch more burned out beach people being like, it's the government conspiracy, right? The last guy I read who said it was a government conspiracy died a week ago of the corona, right? Like this is a horrible thing that's happening. This is not a conspiracy. It's not 
some weird whatever. So don't be depressed if from here on for the next couple, three years, maybe longer. We're in the age of the pandemic. Thesis number one, welcome to the great dance. It's going to be a waltz. It's going to be it's going to be a shuffle. It's going to be a few moves and then a few moves back and a few moves forward and a few moves back. And it might be it might be that we get a good summer. And then it might be like, uh oh, September comes and, you know, do colleges just bring back thousands of people into one space? That's going to be a real tough call. And they're going to have to keep a real careful eye on it. And they're going to have to probably roll it out pretty slow, maybe do some hybrid stuff. It's going to be a dance, okay? You might start the quarter at UC, whatever, and then be like, uh oh, uh oh, rates are going, things are going up. We're seeing, we're seeing some scary movement. Let's dial it back. Your, your course just went online for a season. It's going to be, a dance. It's not going to be one just here we go straightforward, no big deal. And it's also not going to be sort of, you know, staying home forever. Every literally every state is like in a week or two like okay, we're not going to be doing that completely the same way for, you know, for the near future. We're going to start rolling this back a little bit. But welcome to the great dance. It's going to be a little bit forward, a little bit back. And then depending on waves, Depending on moments, depending on the timing of the vaccine, depending on, you know, just how people gather and where they gather, depending on region, population density, any number of things, just get ready for a dance. Get get ready to not run out the door and sprint forward, but get ready to do a little waltz, a little shuffle. Thesis number one, this is the new normal. Welcome to the great dance. Seasons, maybe weeks, maybe months of of rolling things back and entering back into many of our old kind of routines or at least, uh, you know, places of the economy and businesses that are be reopened. And then, uh, uh-oh, uh, kind of roll back home. Going to be staying at home for a little while until things kind of settle down a little bit. Roll back out. It's going to have a rhythm. Hopefully, it'll have some kind of rhythm to it, but it's not going to be a sprint. Welcome to the great dance thesis number one thesis number two um home home i don't even know what else to say home um you know in the 90s 80s 90s right moral majority or evangelical subculture focus on the family i say thesis number two focus on the home we already know american society it doesn't have sort of typical even typical uh nuclear family structures in many places uh, across society, right? That that's that's less and less a common thing, right? Um, so instead of saying focus on you know the family, whatever that is, focus on the home. Quite literally, the home is the new center of reality. The home had been displaced because of our mobility, because of our freedom. You know, you didn't have to plan on sort of uh, living with your parents. You didn't have to plan on um, on staying even you know sort of with your family that you had because you, most of your life was at work most of your life was all these different places and so home was sort of part of your story but it wasn't the center of your story no matter what Christians said or wanted to believe home for many people was not the actual core in the sense that it was the center of sort of their psychological health the center of their sort of uh, meaningfulness right the center of whatever it, it just wasn't that it had not been that for for a long time. Um, welcome home, okay? Focus on the home. Home has to get sorted out. Thesis number two, this is not going to be a blip. The, the lockdown, the experience of lockdown, the experience of having to actually deal with the people who are in our homes, not just the people that we like in our homes, but all the people in our homes um, having to deal with our home and that environment. For some, having to deal with the loneliness of, of being in home alone and that being what that is, 
no roommate, no spouse, no whatever, reckoning with that and having to build and use that, that place of honesty of, of okay, I am like literally alone and home for me is literally me at home, um, having to focus on the home now and say home cannot just be the place I crash. Home cannot just be like it. Well, that was what it was for me, like, uh, you know, in my early like 20s or whatever. Uh, always gone, always gone, always gone. Come home. It's just literally the place where the bed is. Um, I don't think I use the fridge, you know, eat out, eat out, eat out. And then home is the place I crashed. Home now has to be. It's going to, this is not going to go away. Home is unbelievably important and needs to be sorted out needs to be reckoned with. Home needs to become a place of rest, a place of health, a place of life. Devastatingly, home has not been that way. And so what quarantine has done, stay at home has done, has skyrocketed rates of domestic violence and abuse. Broken homes have been exposed and accelerated. I heard a person smarter than me said, all corona and these kind of things will do. They will not create new problems. They will, accelerate, they will reveal and accelerate existing issues. So if there's existing issues in the home, they have been exposed and they have been accelerated by this season of staying at home. So domestic violence, domestic assault has gone through the roof. It is unbelievable. It's devastating. It's wicked. It's evil. It's all sorts of things. And it was there already. It's now just been revealed and accelerated because of this intense pressure on the home. Home is the focus. Thesis number two, focus on the home. The home has to get sorted or nothing is sorted. Okay? Career getting sorted doesn't matter in the way it used to. If you even have a career after this or if your career doesn't change completely or radically, home needs to get sorted or nothing is sorted. It's like, it's like food, water, clothes, home. It's not just the place you crash. It is now most obviously the psychological, spiritual, emotional, like dwelling place of your soul. Beginning of the day, end of the day, middle of the day, it's the place where you're going to get energy or you're going to be depleted. It's the place that's going to build you up or it's going to tear you down. It has to get sorted. Thesis number two. Focus on the home. It's not going anywhere. It is now the unavoidable center of people's lives. And I don't think that's going to change because of thesis number one. The great dance means we're going to be returning to this kind of rhythm of returning home, I think, in different seasons and different waves and things like this. I don't think it's going to be like, that was an interesting little time of weird sort of camping with my family and spending a whole lot of time with my kids. And now I'm going to go back to the way things were. I don't think that's going to happen at all. I think everyone needs to reckon with the fact that home, the health of your home, and the system of people that live there, not just marriage, but of course, but the system of people that live in your home has to get sorted or nothing is sorted, has to get healthy, has to get prayer, has to get the peace of God or nothing is going to be healthy. And, and, I, and I, I, ah, thesis number two, home is everything. Thesis number three, church changes, church changes. I mean, this is probably obvious, but so many people attend churches whose sizes, megachurch or, I mean, megachurch is like over a thousand people. So that's a ton of churches, at least in California. That's like, you know, the vast majority of people I know attend megachurches, right? Technically megachurches. Um, 
church is going to change. They literally won't ha- be able to have gatherings that size, I don't think, in the foreseeable future. I really don't. If they do, what are they going to do? They're going to have auditoriums. They're going to have to space people out. They're going to have to uh, have, what, 15 services <laughs> so that they can have, like, what, 25% capacity? I mean, it's going to be like what they're doing with restaurants as they're slowly reopening in certain places this next week. They're saying, look, you can have people in your restaurant in the next week or two, but it needs to be at 25% of your normal capacity and there needs to be social distance spacing between the tables and there has to be reservation only so there's not a buildup of a crowd or a line waiting in some sort of lobby or waiting area because that's Corona Town, right? So, so church is going to be the same thing, right? You're not going to be able to have these large gatherings. It, you're going to be able to take huge spaces that many of these churches have and they're going to probably be like, you can have like 20% of your people if you spread them all out and everything like that. Well, then what does that mean? How are you going to accommodate that? How are you going to, how are you going to act actually have a service for all your people. You'd have to have like 10, 20, what? 25. (laughs) Math is bad for me. Five times the uh, number of services you have right now to accommodate all your people, maybe more, right? It's going to radically change. And I think hopefully get people to question, what do we need to be the church? Because I don't think we're going to get what we want. What do we want to be the church? What we were doing before. Entertainment, right? Uh, it's a show. It's a beautiful show. Powerful, right? It's it's a concert. It's it's a huge sort of. I mean, the energy that can be in a in a, in a gathering of hundreds and hundreds of people is extraordinary emotional energy, right? It's it's thrilling. It's exciting, right? When they hit the third or fourth chorus of Oceans, like you know, anybody with a heart is like weeping. That's not going to be able to happen that way anymore. Church is going to have to change. We're not going to be able to have the churches that we wanted. We're going to be able to have to. We're going to have to rethink church and say, okay, wait, 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 wait. What is? What do we need to be the church? What do we need to be the church? And I will just say, ah, you know, I maybe I'm totally off here, but having been pastor of a small church for a season and a half and a half and a billion over 10 years, John and I pastoring a church of about 50 people, let's be perfectly honest, on a good Sunday, 50 people. Well, my friends, might I recommend that it is possible to have a church of 50 or less people and it's actually quite beautiful and it's actually incredible because you you potentially you could actually know your pastor have an ongoing sort of relationship of care and and acknowledgement from the person who's teaching you the word um i, I would just say i'm just saying say big ups i'm going to rep the possibilities of the small church. I know there are small churches that are straight cults and like weird sort of families, you know, like <laughs> you would like a weird family you would never want to visit. Like I know, I know that small church can be like super creepy for some kind of like radically weird whatever, but I will just say when we're having to rethink church, that's thesis number 3. We're going to have to rethink church as far as size, as far as the structure, as far as the power. I, I think the power has always been in contemporary Christianity, it's always been with charismatic leaders. It's always been with celebrity pastors. And I'm telling you guys, it's now back into the hands of the people. 
And I don't mean like it's sort of, you know, populist rule or whatever. I'm, what I mean is it's a great pruning. It's a great harvesting. The Lord's finding out right now who actually is the church. And the church is finding out right now who actually is the church. Because the people who want to walk with Jesus are finding ways to continue to walk with Jesus, to be connected to the word, to be connected to each other. They don't need Mr. Life Coach literally talking them into that anymore. The people who really want to follow Jesus are being counted now, are being seen by the Lord. They're being harvested and they're finding out, oh no, they're serious. They're going to find a way to walk with Jesus. They don't need charismatic celebrity pastor to like give them a a 25-minute little sort of, you know, <laughs> little life talk, little TED talk with, with like a little sprinkle of Jesus flakes at the end, like, you know, and some hyper-emotional music that makes me weep but never change. Like, people who, who are following Jesus during this are finding ways, to, they are owning their faith or, or it's not happening and they're washed out. This was a great harvesting. This is a great harvesting to find out who is serious about discipleship. Okay, so if that's true, if only true disciples are going to want to have continued on finding ways to walk with Jesus, stay connected to each other, if there is a great coal, as it were, if there is a great harvest going on through this sort of this challenge, this crisis, if there's a great harvest going on where the souls are being counted who really want to walk with Jesus, well, well then that should give us great hope for for things like even if we have to gather in much smaller sort of groups and stuff because what that would mean is the people who are gathering don't need like you know myself or some you know like I don't know much more well-known sort of charismatic preacher um, to like prop up their faith you're not I'm not your vicarious you know connection to Jesus and oh Dave you know what a powerful sermon I must be connected to Jesus because this is my pastor and somehow there's sort of magical sympathetic magic that travels to me when I hear him preach like it's not that's not going to work the power has been taken away from leaders we're not even able to see people we're like <laughs> does anybody want to watch this this Facebook live video <laughs> like and then it's totally up to you and I don't really I can see a couple people it says so and so is watching um but you know like i okay (laughs) i have no i don't have any like real like i can't do anything with that like what i could do is what i've always been called to do work hard to preach the word prepare the word carefully preach the word to god's people pray for god's people love god's people encourage god's people but i'm just a brother amongst brothers and sisters like if that wasn't obvious before with your much more well-known pastor uh it should be obvious now because the people who are sticking with this who are still giving to their church even though they haven't been able to see their church the people who are still supporting the ministry of the word at their church, man, those are Christians. Those are Christians. Everybody else is washed out. Everybody else is like, oh, man. Nobody's like, you know, he's like, you know, try to find like, you know, week, you know, I don't know, seven, eight, nine. He's going to be looking for the online sermon or whatever. If it's like not that big of a deal to them. Like this, this is the stand and be counted. This is the time in which the church changes. I'm praying the church changes for the good. If he's purifying the church, if he is harvesting the church, if he's finding out who's serious about Jesus, who's serious about discipleship, man, what a wonderful thing. 
if the power is leaving celebrity charismatic singular leaders and large buildings or sort of big sort of mega experiences and actually the focus finally being put back where it always should have been, which is the ordinary commitments and cost of discipleship. Can I get an amen from somebody out there in TV land? Can I, can I please get an amen? I don't care where you are. The real power of the Christian life was never in you being connected to some great speaker. The real power of the Christian life is in the Holy Spirit because you are trusting Jesus and you worship him as your Lord and your Savior. And I hope to God that that has become so unbelievably clear that people in their normal lives, people who think of themselves as ordinary, maybe they don't think they change that much. They think that they're just sort of quiet, sort of just keep on going sort of Christians. I hope you recognize that is all we were ever supposed to be is just keep going Christians, is just keep loving Jesus, serving our neighbor Christians, that it was always simple, that, that a lot of us got together, went to seminary, and <laughs> made everything much more complicated, and frankly, a career for ourselves, personal ambition, recognition, empire building, right? <laughs> we did all sorts of crazy things, and now I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope the veil is lifted. And I hope the apparatus of Oz and, the, you know, the old man behind the curtain, you know, using the giant megaphone, you know, and all the amplification technology of the contemporary Christian church. I hope it's just like, ah, now I'm just a tiny little box on your dumb little screen. And and who even knows, right? Like now all the slickness might just look stupid. Now, if we ain't talking about Jesus constantly, if we're talking about anything else, if we're talking about anything but Jesus, man, I hope it's ridiculous to you. I hope it gets washed out. I hope it doesn't survive. I've been praying for years that God would blow up the church. I don't mean that in like a crazy sounding way, but I've been praying for years that God would just sort of like stop the crazy consumer driven, voyeuristic, creepy movie theater viewing them worship Jesus for us like Christianity that like is everywhere and I don't even think people even meant a lot of it I think it just sort of happened and and I just man thesis number three church changes but what changes is what can and should change what doesn't change it was was always the point normal people praying their eyes out, walking with Jesus in their normal lives till kingdom come, knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail against an ordinary disciple who gives everything to follow Jesus as their Lord. I can't stop preaching right now. I have to. Thesis number four. Work will change. <laughs> okay, way obvious, all right? Work will change. You're like, work has changed. True. And this is really important. One thing that's happened across different kinds of work, is many people discover they don't need to go to an office to do their work. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to want to be in whatever place, you know, with their kids running around all the time, like that, not, not necessarily ideal. But many people are realizing, man, there's a lot of like buildings that exist and a lot of rent that's being paid. And uh, I can do my job just fine remotely. Many people are realizing, man, they won't even need to live in cities that they live, that they move to for certain kinds of work because this has literally proven to their bosses, their companies and everything that the kind of work they're doing, they can do just as well in some rural, sweet little town uh, with a decent Wi-Fi connection. And I think that's going to dramatically change the landscape of work. There's been such a concentration on mega city, major city, London, New York, L.A. You got to go to the city. You got to go to the city. The tech thing kind of disrupted a little bit, but it still was like you got to be in the 
now you got to be in the tech city, right? Now you got to be in this city and you got to be in that city. And I, I think this is just proving to a lot of people, man, so much work can be done very well remotely. And I don't, I'm not saying like through Zoom or whatever. I mean, like so many people can actually do a really good amount of their work remotely. One of my, one of my best friends for ages, I don't even want to say how many years because she's a lady and I respect that she's a lady, uh, a young, vibrant, active human in the world. Um, but I've known her for many years, working for a major, major tech company. And she's worked remotely for ages when everybody around her practically was working in an office, in an office, in an office. She's like Miss Remote Pro. She knows who I am. She knows I'm talking about her right now. So I don't even need to shout her out. Jen Carlos. I don't even need to say a name. I'm just thinking of a person, okay? Now, listen, she's like, hey, welcome to the party, everybody. Yeah, like I've been, she's been living a full-time, high-level tech, like, like computer programming life um, remotely. And, 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 and now all of a sudden people who aren't just doing that kind of work, but people who are doing all sorts of different kind of work are like, ah, oh, I can do this at home or I can do this in a coffee shop or I can do this without like, like – and companies are realizing this. So this is going to change. It's going to change – it's going to change design. It's going to change workspaces. It's going to change like buildings. It's going to change like people are going to be like, we don't need this building. There's going to be some obvious changes just with the fact that a lot of work, it turns out, can be done remotely just fine. Okay. Also, you know this is going to accelerate AI. You know this is going to accelerate where a lot of people are like, oh, wait. So wait, the, the costs for employing people, social distancing, health insurance, uh, maybe the great dance of my, my, my workers suddenly disappearing or being furloughed or having to be at home. Like, there, you know from the employer on down, forget anybody else, for, you know from companies on down, they're going to be like, uh, we need to automate absolutely anything that we can possibly automate because the computer is not going to get the coronavirus. They might get another kind of virus, but the computer is not going to get the coronavirus. The computer is not going to be furloughed. The computer is not going to be whatever, right? So if we can get some bots up in this place, if we can get some AI going, this is going to, AI to me, it was like at this point, I was like, huh, AI is kind of cool, you know, it's kind of like the early adoption sort of people who like just want to get the new thing because whatever, they're bored. It was like AI, yeah, you know, it's kind of cool, a little freaky, (laughs) a little freaky. I saw that robot video and he's running like a human. It makes me want to scream, you know, whatever. Now it's going to be like, uh, we need uh, automatic driving cars because I don't want any sort of Uber driver coughing on me uh, if if Corona comes back for wave three or, or the next pandemic, whatever the next pandemic is because age of the pandemic welcome to age of the pandemic so all of a sudden automated uh transit automated driving automated automated any number of things but automated work is going to now not just be it's like a cute clever thing that some some people are doing because they like sci-fi movies right now it's going to be like uh we need to as a company we need to determine what can possibly be automated and we need to automate it now because then we don't have to worry about all this crazy human biological virus stuff and it impacting our business, right? So this is going to become accelerated. The automation thing just got a, like a huge boost because of pandemic, right? So automation is going to go through the roof. Now what that means is, and Cal Newport and other people have written about this and we've actually talked about this on the pod before, um, but now it's not just like interesting. Now it's like vital. What that means is the kind of work people do that is most uniquely human is going to be the kind of work that is also the most uniquely valuable because it can't be easily automated. Namely, synthetic thinking and deep, deep, deep 
extended, long, critical thinking about particular things. Okay, there is something there is something in the human person that is capable of deep, 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 deep thinking and synthetic thinking that that it cannot be automated easily, if if at all, to to the same extent. So, what Cal Newport has written about deep work is now going to be not just like, oh, that's cool if you're bookish or, you know, whatever, or if you're, you know, like uh, introvert or something. Uh, now it's going to be like, if you want a job, if you want a job that is not obviously going to need to be automated to protect your employer's sort of bottom line for their future in the age of a, a future age that we're in now, the pandemic, um, you're going to need to become a person who is able to think deeply and synthetically. Okay. And what that means is there's going to be a premium on those people with discipline. There's going to be a premium on people who can uh, sort of detox from an age of interruption. There's going to be a, a premium on people who can retrain or continue to train themselves to focus their attention for longer and longer periods of time in ways that a hyper jump cut era of advertising and video games and and phones has completely set up our average society to not be capable of doing um, at least not to do well and not to do easily, right? So everybody's ca- capable of deep, sustained, synthetic thinking uh, because they're human beings. So they have that capacity somewhere. Um, but we've been living for years and years and years and years and years in a hyper overstimulated, hyper interruption culture. And, and now it's going to be pretty frightening potentially to see who actually emerges as capable of work that cannot be thinking that cannot be easily automated across business sectors. So the age of work changing, thesis number four, work will change, but it won't just be some remote stuff and a little more zooming here and there or whatever. Um, it's going to be the value that is placed on deep, critical thinking and sustained, focused attention. It's going to be like people who realize they have like a high blood pressure, or high cholesterol. They're going to be like, I have high attention deficit. I have high interruption rhythms and I'm going to need to retrain myself literally for the health and viability of myself as a person who can have a job in the age of pandemics, in the age of all these things changing. They're, the value of deep, sustained, focused attention is going to be, it's, I mean, unfortunately, maybe, but it's going to be quantifiable. It's going to be rare and it's going to be rewarded. Those who are working at that, who are disciplining themselves, their attention, who take Aristotle seriously and say habits create the person, habits create character, that you're not a person you want to be or say you are or would like to be. You're the person that does whatever you actually do. Whatever your habits are, that's who you are. Well, that's the same for you as a worker. Like your, your, your work is at the level of your habits. And so the value, the premium value that's going to that's gonna move into what Cal Newport calls deep work. And I really hope everyone just goes back out and buys that book because you talk about sort of important sort of prophetic kind of Karnak the Magnificent. Just read that book and you'll be like, oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, shoot. I got to start lifting. Okay. Thesis number five, school. School's going to change. Again, I'm just doing the obvious things here, but thesis number five, school's going to change. Now, I work at a high school. High school is relatively small, and so we might have a little more options, kind of like small church. We might be able to like do things that other schools that are much larger just could not possibly do. 
Um, but school's going to change. One thing that I hope connects between four and five, the change in work and the change, I hope that it'll affect the change in school. I hope people will be like, oh my gosh, wait. So education is really about learning how to critically and synthetically think, interpret information, make wise choices, be like strong and capable as a decision maker. Like I hope literally all the things that the classical tradition, the liberal arts tradition have always been saying about what school and education actually is, i.e. the development of deep character through the development of learning through good habits to love what is good, true, and beautiful. I hope that that becomes, maybe it'll just become reverse engineered out of the business world. People will just be like, uh, uh uh-oh, everything's automated. The only thing that seems to be valued is like this deep capacity for certain humans to sustain and focus their attention to critical think and solve problems and interpret different kinds of data from different sectors in a synthetic way that looks at pictures holistically and is able to kind of jump from one topic to the next, but hold things together in a way unique to the human capacity. I mean, I'm, you know, machines can do incredible things and I'm sure will, will astound us, but we are still the thinkers. We are still, we are still the, the minds that God gave us. And so maybe it'll come from the change in work and then people will be like, uh, you know what school is actually for? <laughs> it's for the development of disciplined, deep thinking for the purpose of being able to make wise decisions as a human in the world. This should have been like known at the rise of like the need for sort of HR when people realized that like social IQ was almost as important, if not more important in hiring than like average I than, than, than intellectual IQ. Um, wait, did I say social IQ? Uh, emotional intelligence, sorry, <laughs> EQ. When people realized like over the last 10, 15 years, like, oh, wow, like, we got a bunch of geniuses, and they're complete horrible people, and, and it ruins everything. Like, it, everyone hates work, because nobody wants to be around any of these people. Like, like, you would hope that that, like, had pushed people to say, maybe, maybe, um, just being able to sort of process things at a, at a really high level, but not being able to think synthetically across, like, human intelligence, emotional intelligence categories and stuff like that. You would think it might have cued some people into it, and, and maybe it did some people. But school's going to have to change. I hope, I hope, and I say this a little sadly because I know how, uh, some seniors in my world are really looking forward to, like, you know, college as, you know, event center. <laughs> But I really hope in the near future there's an end to college as this sort of like sandbox for giant children to waste their parents' money by like drinking a lot of beer and partying and and just like being like way into like college sports. Like I'm all about college sports if we get college sports back anytime soon. Apparently, I mean, think about it, golf and tennis, we should probably get back. So everyone's going to be like, wow, (laughs) can you imagine everybody who watched football in the past or like basketball is like going to be like an expert, like fan of golfing (laughs) because everyone's all spaced out. Anyways, that's not even one of my theses, man. I should have added that to the list. Thesis number 10, the rise of golf. Okay, no change in, in school um, for obvious reasons how how are schools going to accommodate the great dance you, again you start part of the semester together and then there's a spike and all of a sudden everyone's got to go back to online there's gonna what what that's going to do is schools are not going to be able to and i'm talking i'm thinking like largely colleges here but um, they're not gonna be able to justify these outlandish budgets these outlandish number of buildings these outlandish just sort of like the the shopping mall rec center you know ultimate experience of all the things you could think of college campus 
campus is going to be like impossible to justify for many places. They're going to be like, uh, we can't afford this. This is ridiculous. And already I've heard, you know, pushback from college students who are like, I did not pay, you know, $50,000 a year in tuition for the University of Chicago to have like, you know, a couple like classes just like go online and just sort of be sort of winged by old professors who don't want to be doing this right like people are gonna be like this is not worth the money I, like it's gonna finally i hope pop the big bubble of what the heck were you paying for college how on earth was that even educating you to think deeply and live wisely and then uh, and then the schools that are able to sort of accommodate the great dance and i think hopefully that have an emphasis on learning to think deeply and live wisely those will be the institutions and they might not even exist right now but those will be the schools that i hope people are like hey that is actually worth it that is an investment that uh, that'll that'll help me not just be a worker in this automated landscape that'll help me be a human <laughs> in in a very difficult world um and so so i think there'll, there's going to be some massive changes i'm already aware of many schools that will be shutting down because of this uh they just cannot justify it because of the you know all this stuff hit when schools are like kind of firming up their enrollments for the fall and so like if you don't have guaranteed enrollments like you know because everyone's distracted by like surviving a pandemic then you know there's already going to be massive sort of there's going to be a collapse of many places and i include in that seminaries i think seminaries got to be like what are we doing like what are we doing are we actually training people to sort of you know understand the scripture and the original languages and be able to teach god's people and shape people well are we actually training pastors is that what we're actually doing like we were supposed to do or are we like again are we just a sandbox of like whatever you want to do <laughs> right like design your own education you know like uh, you know whatever whatever schools have been up to i think there's going to be a collapse i think people are going to see through so much of the wasted money and so much of the sort of bureaucratic technocratic, uh, business-ocratic. I mean, schools just turn, education turned into the house of business, turned into the house of brands. And I hope that some of the changes that are going to come this way in the next few years here are going to be a lot of people saying, uh, how did we put up with that? How are we so duped by that? Why did we create this? What have we done? This is not what education is about. Education is clearly, clearly about learning to think deeply and live wisely. So, Number five, school is going to change, I, I hope. Number six, the value of critical thinking. I've, I've already queued this up. But I'm talking not just to go to school to learn how to think critically, although clearly that's the most important thing you could get out of your education outside of sort of basic character development, which should not be unrelated to that. Um, but the value of critical thinking, I mean for everyone, okay? It is so hard to think, think critically with the barrage of uh, news sources, opinions um, about every single topic all the time. And I really have a lot of, of sympathy for the challenge of our society facing how, how important critical thinking is, how important deep synthetic interpretive work is, how important it is to weigh sources and where they're coming from and interpret human beings and the data that they are providing you and learn when to extrapolate, when not to extrapolate, when things are mutually exclusive, when they're not mutually exclusive claims. Like the any number of things that you would have taken in a logic class or a critical thinking class, uh, you know, just uh, a course on logical fallacies, anything that you, you might have had to take in a rhetoric course once upon a time or again, just sort of an entry level 
Um, I used to teach this at community college. I certainly teach it to my high schoolers. Um, anything that has to do with actual sort of careful, critical thinking, weighing data, weighing sources and where information is coming from, being able to, to, to take input from many different channels and synthetic, in other words, bring it together, right? Make a synthesis, synthesize information, synthesize different perspectives and, and be able to make reasonable, valid um, judgments. I mean, like, is currently why uh, there is even more of a crisis, um, let's say from the government on down in many places, because we have political leaders who can't do that. And, and it's so obvious, it's, it's, it's terrifying, frankly. Um, but, but forget like the really big people, unfortunately, let's, for, for a second. The value of critical thinking for the average person to negotiate what they see on Facebook, what they read from, what news source, when, to be able to, to think outside of tribal loyalties, to be able to think outside of groupthink, right? Well, what is, my, what is my team like? Well, he can't be right. He's a Democrat or he can't be right. He's a Republican, right? Like the, the, the things that kill critical thinking, right? Groupthink, tribalism, all the things that kill critical thinking, um, that shortcut critical thinking, uh, ad hominems, character attacks, right? Whatever, just sarcasm or cynicism. That, that stuff is literally killing people. It's literally killing people, and it will continue to kill people. People, this is such a huge, at every level of society, and, and I'm talking especially people who are not in school, who are not going to hear this presented to them in any formal way, the value of deep critical thinking, of being able to hear a variety of different uh, sources of information, weigh the quality of those sources, weigh the quality of the argument, weigh the logic of the argument against the quality, the logic, the source uh, on this side. And to be able to, to bring those things together is incredibly hard work. And it is life and death work. It is life and death work. And, and it, is, it is terrifying because we live in an age of conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists where conspiracy theories used to just be like, you know, kind of fun, kind of quirky, weird people you would stumble upon, you know, or, or like somebody's uncle somewhere who never got married is just sort of like, but collects news clippings about JFK, you know, you know, like it, it was around, you know, but it usually appeared in a movie and it either was or it either was the serial killer or it was like, like a guy who like helped them catch the serial killer. You know, and like his house is covered in tinfoil and stuff. Now, conspiracy theory is just like being pers- being American, right? Conspiracy theory? Like, it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's as American as apple pie, right? Like, we have so hollowed out our ability to think deeply and critically because of the polarization of the tribalism for the last 10, 20, whatever years. Um, that has so short-circuited deep critical thinking because we like literally can't think as individuals we can only think in groups now like what is my side what is my, who's who are the bad guys who are the who are the them who is my us right we have completely annihilated our capacity in general society to think critically right uh, online you know social media trolling just like just just tweet you know tweet thoughts right the level of uh, just skipping a stone across the surface and the and the surface of what it's not some crystal clear water it's like a black cesspool of human filth yeah so that the value of critical thinking thesis number six the value of critical thinking is now is now being revealed to be life and death it's not like oh i have a hobby and it's called critical thinking 
or I have a hobby and it's called conspiracy theorizing. It's like, no, now it's like I am incapable of this and it could endanger myself or my family or my neighbor or I am capable of this. And so if you are capable of this or you're working hard to carefully not be short circuited by tribalism, polarization, simplistic, you know, reductionist thinking, group think, whatever, you can actually weigh sources, you can weigh logic, you can you can synthesize information, you can you can read from a variety of sources and you would always read from a variety of sources before making a judgment on anything at all and you're not pinning yourself to random sort of emotive judgments that people are going to know you for and you're going to be ashamed to walk back someday when you should and need to and out of vanity and pride are going to stick with a bad idea because now you're bound up with it and you have to double down or else you feel like an idiot my friends please be the idiot you need to be in order to get to the truth you need to get to but but we are so past that point that the, the few people who can do that who can just be like well i was way wrong way wrong. I thought this thing was nothing, you know, I was way wrong. Or I thought this, I was way wrong about that. I've come to see a much better argument. And now I can see that, you know, I was completely wrong for these reasons. The, the people who can actually change their mind, have their mind changed by a better argument. You, whoever you are out there in Podland, you are the leaders. You must be. You certainly are and can be for your families because if you can do this kind of deep critical thinking outside of these these polarized tribalistic categories, then you have to be able to at least help a couple people see something a little more clearly and make a better decision. I think the value of critical thinking, thesis number six, the value of critical thinking in the age of the pandemic, in the age of whatever our future is going to be, the new normal is going to be life and death. It's going to be obviously life and death. And I think those of you who can do this, you need to be leaders. You need to step up and you need to do it carefully and you need to do it, what I would say, pastorally, which is with the human soul and the human heart, not just the truth in mind, but the truth in the context of human beings who are who are as fallible as you are and who need cared for and who need walked through things in a respectful, um, ennobling, but truthful way. Um, you out there who can do that, please, God, please, please, please um, be willing to step up and lead in certain places more often than you might have in the past because you are now uh, that diamond in the rough. You're Aladdin out here. Diamond in the rough. Seek me out. What does he say? Seek me out. The diamond in the rough. You're the diamond in the rough if you can think critically in the age of the pandemic. All right, thesis number seven. Uh, life is perish. Mm. It almost sounded like life is perishing. Not what I meant. Life is perish. The value of community is now clear because what community means is now clear. Let me put it this way. Community as a slogan or as a brand or as an idea, it was like, man, community, community. Everyone needs community. And I'm just thinking of the church land of like, Ridiculous! We got to sell you on ideas and stuff like this because we think you might like it. <laughs> um, so I'm just thinking in terms of sort of like advertising. But um, but community, everyone's like, oh, yeah, community, community. Even though we're like hyper-narcissistic individualist society, we're like, but I really want a community. Um, well, now you know your community. I think, I think thesis number six, the true community is the parish. And I don't, I mean, that would be awesome if it was like your local church was where you lived. But what I mean by the parish is I mean your actual neighborhood. I mean, literally where you live. Age of the quarantine, age of the lockdown, your community, you, you actually like figured it out. It's like, oh, it's my actual neighbor. It's these people right here in my neighborhood. It's literally the people in like this, like what? I don't know, one mile radius, if that, right? Like your community is like the town you live in. 
Orange County, are you kidding me? Like, people from my church live in, like, I don't know, 27 different cities. But, like, now, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, like, our, like, first step out the door, like, our community, it's like, oh, our street. Like, our street is our community. Our neighbors uh, were just throwing a little block party the other day, six to ten feet apart in lawn chairs in the middle of the street. Respect. Okay, I'm on a walk with John and Violet. Here we go. Everyone, howdy neighbor, howdy, friendliest people in the world. Why? Because we all like just sort of realized, hey, you're you're what we got. <laughs> this is my community, right? By virtue of the region I happen to live in. So this is Wendell Berry, you know, prophetically looking to a future in which people returned to life amongst their neighbors in small communities. Now your small community could be you in New York City in your apartment. Your apartment building is your community, and you are aware of that in a way that you were never aware of it before because you didn't need to talk to nobody before when you had the freedom to just do whatever the heck and go wherever the heck you wanted. Remember, home was just a place to crash. Now, home is where the community is. Your Parish is the new normal. Parish is the new normal. Now, that can sound morbid. So thesis number seven, the true community has emerged, and it is actually your neighborhood. And I think that is glorious and beautiful, right? In the age of the tech age, and there's just this this kind of like naturalistic recoil uh, against our will, this humbling where we literally, it's, it's the people we are literally physically, time, space, flesh and blood near. That is our community. And that's going to be, I think, more and more important. I don't think it was just like some cool little fad, you know, that was kind of cute, you know, during the quarantine. Oh, we're on walks, you know, <laughs> oh, I get to see neighbors. I think it's going to be like, no, you're going to realize and you're going to value each other more. You're going to look out for each other more. You're going to be interested in each other more. You're going to be praying for each other more. You're going to be curious about life together more. You're going to be more interested in your town. You're going to be more interested in the history of your town. You're going to be less likely to think of yourself as always moving anytime you want. And you're going to be more likely to think of yourself as fairly grounded in a particular place. Thesis number seven. Parish is the new normal place, community, the true community. It's your neighborhood. It's the town you actually live in. It is actually the physical space around your home like it once was. And I think there are opportunities, tremendous opportunities for blessing within that. Uh, thesis number eight, and I'm, I'm almost there, so hang in there. What do you have to do? <laughs> Where are you going? Where are you going? Just pause me, pick it up tomorrow. You know how this goes. This is number eight. Institutions with an exclamation point. Now, that means, based on what I've said before, institutions are going to be radically torn down. Some are going to be whatever. The value of institutions uh, should be unbelievably obvious right now, especially when those institutions are not working. When they fail. Like the value of a good school should be increasingly obvious right now, especially as many schools struggle to figure out what the heck they're doing or what they even should be doing. Like, what, what, what is education? The value of an institution that has a real good answer for that and that answer is not changed by the coronavirus and that answer is not changed by an uncertain future because it's just true. Um, the value of institutional clarity, the value of institutions that, that actually know why they exist and why God has like allowed them to be and why they are a blessing to the common society around them, 
those institutions should shine like beacons of light. They should be like a lighthouse in the fog as everyone is trying not to crash against the dark rocks. Okay, the value of institutions right now, if only through the value or through the devastation of their failure. And I will also say, by the way, one of the issues that happened with the the, the breakdown of critical thinking was a radical distrust of institutions. Right, like. Oh, experts, you know, like, how dare experts tell us what to do? You know, like, no expert's going to tell me. I have common sense, you know. Like, uh, there was this, this just absolute backlash against institutions that became really trendy and literally trendy, like populist trendy. It wasn't necessarily built on any strong arguments. You can make really good arguments attacking certain institutions, absolutely, and I'm, I'm here for that. Um, I'm talking about a casual cynicism about institutions. I'm talking about a sort of a hip, you know, pocket Nietzsche. I'm about 21, sallow skinned, and I'm like playing with material atheism, right? I'm talking like just kind of cool to be anti-institution, period. Kind of a full stop, sort of a kind of indie libertarian vibe. I'm talking about that vibe. Not a lot of good arguments necessarily. Again, I got a lot of libertarian friends, a lot of good arguments. I'm not, I'm not disrespecting you know, people who like federalism or whatever. Um, you know, I'm not disrespecting people who have who've come by that position, honestly. However, the value of institutions, precisely for all the problems that they, they can be, the value of quality institutions uh, should become obvious. And maybe, maybe there will be an elimination, maybe there will be an elimination of many major institutions or at least versions of those institutions. So not elimination of college, but elimination of many colleges. Okay, So maybe there will be a radical sort of reformation of institutions. I hope there will be, including how they think about physical space and the need for certain kinds of buildings or other kinds of things. Um, But the value of institutions, the value of people, uh, it's almost like the way I see a a good institution working is a bunch of people who have taken uh, major responsibility for really important things that affect more than a few people. Uh, That sounded really weird probably or vague, but um, it's really important that there are people who feel that they are responsible to make decisions that affect a lot of other people. Because something happens when you are responsible for more than just yourself that modulates and um, shapes the care of your thinking um, to be responsible to many other people. Okay, this to me is the value potentially of institutions or the value of institutional leadership. It should, institutions should. Um, be made possible in part by the fact that there are certain people who are willing to be blamed for making decisions that could that could imperil people and are willing to make the decision anyway because they take the responsibility seriously so like even if i'm like blow up you know you know mega church land and like you know let's get rid of all the fake Christianity and all the consumer nonsense and spectacle church and whatever. Um, even if I'm like that, oh my gosh, the value, I'm not anti-authority. I'm not anti-authority. Um, I'm not anti-leaders. I might be anti-sort of charismatic, you know, $5,000 sneaker leaders or something, but I'm not anti-authority. I'm not anti-leaders. There have to be people who take ownership of the seriousness of their decisions by, by saying, you know what, I'm willing, I'm willing to stay up late worrying about more than just myself and my own family, but worry about how my decision might affect an entire group of people. 
There have to be people like that because that kind of thinking has to exist. I can say as a pastor, I'm not free to think whatever I want as a pastor. I have to think about my people. I can't just be like, oh, here, here's this new uh, trend I'm interested in and then drag 50 people into it. That's completely reckless, irresponsible, and an exaggerated form of egoism. And if you're a part of a church where your pastor regularly lurches to the next book or the next thing, you know how deadening that is for your soul and how exhausting that is for your spirit. But what I am saying is a pastor is not free to just sort of like just be their ego, uh, you know, stretched out over a congregation. Not before the Lord. A pastor has to make decisions for the good of the people, for the good of the congregation before the Lord. A pastor has to be able to make decisions that he could stand before the Lord someday or she could stand before the Lord someday and say, I prayerfully, carefully, with, with all the seriousness and, and fear and trembling imaginable, did my very best to teach the Word of God in a way that I understood and tried to make it clear, tried to lead and care for the souls that were in my care in a way that, that took absolutely with unbelievable and deadly seriousness the responsibility that I have not just to be, you know, me, you know, on a, on a screen or me with a megaphone, right? There have to be leaders. So I think of it in a pastoral way. But a good leader and a good institution um, is is run by and is 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 yeah is is run by or led by people who are not egos with megaphones. They're people who recognize the unbelievable seriousness of having to uh, make decisions that will affect other people. This is what you know politicians are supposed to be, um, and and in fear and trembling, do their very best to make the most careful decision for the common good for the people in their care. There has to be people like that. And in a society that is like default, you know, Randian, you know, horrible individualistic, blah, blah, blah. The value of quality institutions that actually see the call to bless the common good, to, to, to be there with common grace for, for common society, for civic society. The, the absolute unbelievable seriousness of that, of that that's what an institution is for, at least in God's eyes, right? It's to it's to be there for the common good. It's a it's a common grace. Um, it's the you know the Kyperian you know sort of all things everywhere do everything well you know because everything is the Lord's, everything's Christ. So you know you can be in any sector and be doing things well. Institutions matter so much. And yes, they've been bloated, and I hope all the bloat you know is like exploded and cut away and everything else. And I hope I hope. You know, the age of the pandemic reveals the nonsense of certain institutions, the absurdity of other institutions, the fear and predation that many institutions live off of, um, the absolute abuse of other people, the abuse of critical thinking that some institutions prop themselves up based on. But nonetheless, my friends, institutions like our healthcare system, institutions like political representation, institutions like schools and education, public and private, institutions like the church, institutions like I mean, there, there are institutions that, that absolutely need to be there so that we do not devolve into some sort of Hobbesian nightmare of individuals just clawing at each other for more coin or something like this, right? The value of institutions should be at an unbelievable premium, and I hope that this will be an era in which 
quality institutions that are genuinely there for the common good will be so unbelievably obvious. People like myself will be like, I am happy to support that. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Like if you've ever been around bad leadership and then you've been around good leadership, I mean, good leadership is just like, I don't know. It's like, uh, it's like you're a runner and you break through that wall and you just crew. You're just like, Oh, I could, I could, I could hang out all day with this leadership. This leadership's phenomenal. Like this, I don't dread this. And, and then when you're around good leadership and good institutions, you're like, I am glad to be able to go to sleep because I know they're making these huge, heavy decisions and they're taking it seriously and it's on their shoulders and it's not all on my shoulders. There are people out there who are willing to step up and take on more responsibility. That's what a good leader does. So these things are all interrelated, but number eight, thesis number eight, the importance of healthy quality institutions should become blindingly clear, I hope to God. Last thing, thesis number nine. I can't believe you're still with me. Thesis number nine, I'm stealing it from my uh, fellow pastor, said it's obvious probably, but it's brilliant as well. Of course it's true. We've just come out of the tech age and now we are headed into the biological age, the biomedical age. We are leaving now the tech age, and of course these things overlap, but we have been in a tech age, tech bubble, you know, media, you know, online, internet age, all this kind of stuff, information age, Google age, right, all this kind of stuff. And now, my friends, we are headed into the biomedical age. We are headed into the age of science and viruses. We are headed into the age of of you know scanning for fevers before you ever go into a theater we're headed for an age in which biotechnology biomedical understanding um you know the age of the vaccination we've already been in that age some people fighting it but you know okay this is not the time but uh biomedical age that's the age we're headed into um that means you know if you're christian man you want christians to be the people who are, you know, in, in, in the thick of that, right? Being trained in, in the biomedical issues, bioethical uh, questions, right? Um, this, is, this has been coming for a while, but now, it's, now we've been forced into it. So we are now departing the sort of like, oh, I'm doing a startup, you know, where, you know, I, I created this random app that does something that no one needs, but it's kind of cool and diverting for a little while. And wrong answer, Alex, right? Like now it's going to be, uh, oh, I know how to like check and see if your kid has a fever before you, before you feel like, before your kid feels like they have a fever and you're like, ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Yes. I'll take, you know, that answer for 20,000 billion things, Alex, right? The biomedical age is, is upon us for better and for worse, right? Like I, you know, I mean, I can hear people out there being like, that hit his strength, <laughs> the head, <laughs> the NICE. Okay, so better and for worse, right? It's going to be a mixed bag for sure. But nonetheless, reality check. This is going to be the biomedical age, the age of viruses, the age of pandemic, the age of fighting back against those things, the age of science, the age of it's rushing back, right? It's not just going to be a bunch of dropouts from college. It's going to be people who finished college and got degrees in chemistry and things like this, right? It's going to be incredibly important. The biomedical age is upon us. And I would say this, I would say the interesting thing for me to watch a little bit will be the absolute, regular, constant, predictable freakout from Christian subculture over the mark of the beast. Okay, my friends, thank you for staying with me. No, I'm just joking. I'll say a few, I'll say a few words about that, and then we out. Take a swig of my water. Mark of the beast. Oh, my gosh. So, like, um, uh, well, I know a story of a guy who, uh, when they came out with ATM machines, uh, this happened more than one place, I'm sure. Um, you know, the, the ATM machines, like, oh, the debit card, you know, the, the, the code, then you have a number, the scan, the chip, you know. 
people like Christians were like, uh, that's the mark of the beast. I'm never going to get a debit card. I know I, I, I've heard this story. This is a true story. Never going to get a debit card. It's the mark of the beast. And wrong, right? Like there's going to be, there's going to be so many things that happen so soon. Cause how are we going to travel? If, if, how are people going to let you walk into a building if you are not being checked as to your medical records right now? All the tech companies are like racing to figure out how to trace you, uh, and who you've come into contact with so they know if you've spread corona, right? For example. So we are now and going to be in this crazy environment in which biomedical, Plus tech equals Christians regularly uh, like heaving into, not heaving, um, but like breathing into a, a paper bag about the end of the world and the mark of the beast. And and I would just say, you know, pump your brakes, mark of the beast Christians, pump your brakes, left behind Christians, pump your brakes just for a second, pump your brakes. Remember, mark of the beast, if you think that is an actual thing, um, you know, on the hand or on the forehead or whatever, right? If you think that is a literally like a, a thing, um, it is something that obviously uh, serves the beast, okay? It's not something that allows you to go to Bank of America just to withdraw $20, right? That's just called a debit card, okay? So, you know, there's just watch out because Mark of the Beast language already is already here and it's going to be at a fever pitch. Oh, pun intended. It's going to be at a fever pitch. The, uh, the sort of 70s, 80s Christian subculture of evangelicalism, the sort of hyper, you know, 27 left behind books, like all that stuff is going to now come to roost. And my hope, my hope even though I, I don't have a lot of confidence, my hope is it will not derail unbelievably important deep critical thinking on the part of Christians who are familiar or, or fearful about things like uh, the end times and Mark of the Beast and stuff like that. My hope is that people can pray and think carefully and not just be jumping at shadows and call everything the mark. But man, it, not, thesis number nine, we are headed into a biomedical age in which biology is all. And uh, it's going to be unbelievably important to just know people's medical histories, medical records, medical present, um, you know, just all the biometric stuff that's been in development is now going to be thrust into the spotlight. It's going to be how we get in and out of places, how we get on airplanes. It's going to be any number of things. And you can't just say it's the mark of the beast. It's going to be like that. It's going to be like TSA after 9-11. It's going to be like, uh, that's just one of the things we got to give up if we actually want to be able to live in a society that's not constantly melting down with, um, with pandemic, you know, death. So, you know, prepare i see a scar in the lion king be prepared uh prepared for what um the mark of the beast no uh so it's going to be an incredible confluence of sort of fever dreams from the 1970s and 80s from evangelical subculture and uh the biomedical age that we're heading into and again i'm a louisian right i'm a that hideous strengthian so i'll be watching out for heads you know, like if you don't know that reference, you know, read the book. But I'll be I'll be watching out for the NIC. I'll be watching out for it. But uh, don't hate on science as a gift from God. Don't hate on the medical industry. It's a gift from God. Um, it's important to to acknowledge those things as gifts from God and not be in conspiracy theory slash uh, end times conspiracy theory land uh, where you can't you can't even deal with a biomedical age uh, because that is the age we will inherit. Thesis number nine. Thank you, my friends, for joining me. Karnak the Magnificent, Karnak the Maybe Right. Um, you'll tell me as the months and years maybe unfold, if you know me that long, whether or not um, any of this was even risky enough to, 
to make a podcast over. But if that in any way is helpful for you to start thinking forward a little bit, I do hope that uh, things that the Lord is showing you uh, in this moment that are valuable, that you will realize, man, they are valuable like gold is valuable, and you would cling to what is good. As Paul, the Saint, you know, Saint Paul says, he says, uh, you know, put your oh, put your mind on noble, lofty things, things that are high, things that are things that you know are valuable no matter when you happen to be alive. Things you know are good no matter when you happen to be alive. Things that you know are beautiful no matter when you happen to be alive. And if you cling to what is good, true, and beautiful, if you cling to the Lord Jesus and you can receive what is good from him, what is true, and what is beautiful, and you can live in the light of those things, not in the light of fear, not in the light of vain speculation, to be fair, Um, but in the light of what we know to be true, good, and beautiful, the things that really, really matter, the things that are of eternal consequence. Lay up for yourselves, my friends, treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe, and your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed.